0: Good morning, church. What's up? Man, it is good to see you. If you have your Bibles, go with me to 1 Peter chapter 3. I'm excited about this morning. I'm excited about this book. Uh, if you're new with us this morning, we've been in this series called In the Word, where we're walking through First and 2 Peter, and uh, we have these amazing journals. So if you haven't got one, we'd love for you to grab one in the lobby as you leave today. Because there's something amazing about when a church is reading the Word of God together. That we're not just coming on one day a week or two days a week and hearing the Word, but we're in it ourselves and digging into it and and letting it press on us. And I don't know about you, but I feel like chapter three this week pressed on me and uh, and challenged me a lot. But I'm just so thankful. I, I, I want to continue to. Encourage you to be in it with us. Uh, It's really good. And what God will do through the church reading together will be amazing. We're going to read this passage, verses 13 through 18. And then we'll go back through and work our way through it. So verse 13 says, Now, who is there to harm you, if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. I thank you for a time where we get to open it. God, I pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would press on us. That you would reveal to us, God, where we need to grow in our faith in you. But God, I, I pray for boldness for everyone in this room. God, that as we leave here, we will not be the same, that we will be on fire and excited about who you are, Jesus. So we pray this in your name, amen. Hey, I don't know if you know this, but uh, we live in a world that is watching us um, in many ways. If you listen to too much news, you might be freaked out by your iPhone, or if you have an Alexa, it's listening to you, it's weird. Um... But we're being watched, and I'm not talking about like, I don't know why I said that, but, anyways, we're being watched, especially as Christians. You're being examined, the world is looking at you under a microscope, sometimes it seems. And I don't know if you are like me, but there's sometimes you're just in public and you feel like people are watching you. If you have little kids, Sometimes you don't feel like you can escape where they're looking at you, especially when they start speaking. They're everywhere when you're saying something you don't want them to repeat, and I felt this in a real way on Friday. Friday morning, me and the Sloans, we, and my wife, we took our kids, so we had three or four kids, three, two, and two one-year-olds, and we took them to a trampoline park, because why not? And... Um, At 10.30 in the morning, there's not really a lot of uh, people uh, our age jumping on a trampoline. There's a lot of parents watching their very little kids jump on a trampoline. But I felt like if we're going to let my daughter and my son run around, I probably should be able to get to them. But what happened in the moment is uh, my 12-year-old self came out and I decided I needed to go as hard as I could for... As long as I could, which was about five minutes, and then I felt like I couldn't breathe anymore. And I felt like it was time to go home, but we had paid for an hour and we we're gonna stay for that hour. But in that moment, there's a lot of moms, really no dads there, watching their kids. And then you have me and Brandon, two 29 year olds, jumping on a trampoline like we're children. Pegging our kids with dodgeballs, because that's what you do. You got to build them up and strengthen them a little bit. But there came a moment where I am jumping and falling and sweating and feeling like I'm broken. That I was like, I feel like every mom in this building is staring at me and judging me. They're judging me, one, because I'm out of shape. And I wore blue jeans thinking that's a smart idea. And I'm sweating from... From head to toe, and I can't keep up with my three year old and one year old, but I just felt like I was being watched and judged. And the reality for us in this room that claim Jesus is we are being watched to see if what we actually proclaim, what we just saying that Jesus paid it all and all to Him I owe, if that is the reality of our lives and how our lives. Our, the overflow of our lives, our actions, really do prove the way we live. And some days we get tired. And that's in the moment where we need more faith and more hope to stand strong so we don't waver in what we believe. So I want to look at this passage because all throughout First Peter, you're going to just, this constant theme of God preparing us to suffer. What's the purpose behind suffering? Why do we have to suffer? And Peter has, uh, I love this, this book, and he has explained to us why we suffer. He's explained to us who we are in Christ, why we should submit to authority, and this is how we stand. So he says in verse 13, now, which now would just be looking back to what, we had, what we've read in the previous chapters. Now that you know That God is purifying you now that you know who you are, that you're chosen. You were once not a people, now you're God's people. Now that you realize that God has placed authority in your life for a purpose, submit to them. Now you know how to love your spouse and honor them. You understand what it looks like to live a good life early in this passage. Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And this word zealously, eagerly, Desiring good, an eagerness for good. Not, not a selfishness for good, an eagerness to see good. You desire for God's glory, for God's mercy, his grace to be put on display. Who can harm you? It's a, it's a confidence builder here, but an also like a, a probing question for us. If you love Jesus and you are desiring good, who can harm you? It's an interesting question because we know of throughout scripture, we know throughout church history that there have been plenty of people carry the name of Jesus doing good and it go badly for them. But this also points us back to Romans 8 verse 31 when Paul says, if God is for you, then who can be against you? See, in Christianity, if we think with a mindset of what the culture believes, then we'll be misled when Jesus tells us how to live. Because it's different. Because he's thinking about something far beyond what we have right now, further in the future than what's in the temporary. No one can harm you if you've been purchased by Christ, though they might harm your body. They can't harm your soul. If you eagerly desire good, who can harm you? And then verse 14, I love this. But, so he pivots here. Who can harm you if you do good? But, we know that bad does happen to good people. But, even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. And that just doesn't feel right because of what we believe about blessing. If I'm gonna suffer, that doesn't make sense for blessing. If God wants to bless me, He wants me to have more, He wants me to have abundance. Even if I do good, it can end in suffering, it can end in persecution, things can go wrong for me. Then, God, how can you say that it's a blessing? And the massive thing we have to see here is he's talking about for righteousness sake, to make you holy, to make you set apart. Not a selfish self-centeredness, but a righteous sake. But I want to camp on this idea because we have to get, this is massive. If you suffer for righteousness sake, you'll be blessed. When we think of blessing, we think of easy We think of a good life, we think of comfort, we think of abundance, we think of more of fill-in-the-blank in your life, more happiness, more prosperity, more wealth, whatever it is. But suffering and that kind of life don't match up in our minds. So it can't be blessing of abundance and blessing of more of what this world has to offer. It has to be deeper than that. See, Peter tells us that blessing and suffering, he tells us not to, be, not to fear or be troubled. Blessing is you get more of Jesus. You get more of his presence. You get to experience what Christ has to offer, which is painful and hard to understand. See, Peter tells them later in this verse, um, you'll be blessed, have no fear of them. Nor be troubled. And you have to understand the context to what he's writing. He's writing to believers that are facing real persecution, real suffering. They're being hunted down for their faith, they're being arrested, they're being beaten, they're being murdered because they have believed and placed their trust in Jesus. It's not that they lost a friend, it's not that someone called them weird, it's not that they've been. Verbally abused, it's that they are being hunted down for their faith. And Peter says, You will, if you suffer for righteousness' sake, you'll be blessed. Do not fear them or be troubled. They have a real reason to be afraid, they have a real reason to be troubled. Why would he tell them not to fear? See, we run from danger. We run away from anything that brings discomfort. We are afraid of the dark places, the scary places where the name of Jesus needs to be proclaimed. And Peter's telling us that we shouldn't. That blessing comes in the suffering. Why do we run from the dark places if we have God on our side? It's because our view has been distorted of what we're looking at. But I want to ask the question this morning is, so what do we do when suffering comes? What do you do when suffering comes? Because it might not come to America like we see in the Bible. It might not come to America like they're experiencing in the Middle East or in China today. But it could. And if we aren't prepared, then you won't know what you'll do in the moment. So what do we do when suffering comes? Whether it be persecution, whether it be suffering of an illness or a division in your family or friendships or at work or whatever it may be. What do we do when suffering comes? Verse 15. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. See that he is holy. He is just, he is perfect, he is righteous. There's no one like him. He is sovereign over all things. He is holy, set apart. He's set apart. Remind our hearts. Remind your heart this morning, Christian, that God is holy. He knows where you're at. He knows what you've done. He knows what you're going through, and he sees you. He is holy. Honor in your hearts as holy, always Being prepared, underline circle, prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. I want to stop there real quick. Remind yourselves that he's holy and be always, always, in season, out of season, always ready to give a defense, an answer for why we have hope. Always ready for this. Be prepared, ready to tell them and continue why you can stand no matter what this world throws at us. Be ready to tell them. See, you're a Christian in here today. If you've really surrendered to Jesus, you're a Christian because you have a hope that is unlike any other hope in this world. See, because when we talk about hope in this world, we talk about it as if we're crossing our fingers. We're talking about it as if it's a wish. Well, I hope they're going to show up. I hope that dinner I prepared and spent two hours on is going to be good. I hope they're going to be okay. I know they just got this diagnosis, but I hope they're going to be okay. I hope he doesn't mess this up or she doesn't mess this up. I hope, I hope, I hope. And it's this, we're crossing our fingers and hoping, wishing that something will happen. When the Bible talks about hope, Bible is talking about it as a conviction, a confidence, this will happen. It has happened, and it will happen. The hope that Peter's talking about that you need to be ready to, be, to make it a defense for is a confidence that Jesus has done the work. It doesn't rest on you. It doesn't rest on me. It doesn't rest on my talents or my abilities. Jesus has completed it, and I'm not crossing my fingers hoping that he did. I'm not wishing and betting on that Jesus has finished the work. I'm confident and convicted that Jesus has. See, crossing my fingers and being confident are two different mindsets. I heard a guy say one time that you won't die for crossing your fingers, but you'll die for a conviction. When Peter is saying this to these Christians, he's Saying, listen, be prepared to explain why you would die for knowing who Jesus is. That you would suffer at the hands of your persecutors. A confidence. So what are you hoping in this morning? Is your hope a bet? Or is your hope a conviction? It changes how you look at it. See, Peter tells us to be ready to answer why we stand. If you're going to stand, you better be reason, have a reason to stand. And it doesn't have to be this deep theological thing. It's just, I know that Jesus died for me. I know that he stood in my place. I know that he paid my debt. I know that he has bought me with a price and I have life in him. You don't have to go into this deep apologetic of why you believe what you believe. I think it's important to know why you do. But you don't have to be the smartest person in the room. Faith, the assurance of things not yet seen. I know with confidence that Jesus died for me. And that's why they could stand. They had a hope that was unshakable. But see, to answer why you have a hope or why you can have a hope, you got to know what the hope is. We'll come to that in just a second. But the end of this verse, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet, do it with gentleness and respect. Not, he didn't say be harsh, be rude, be condescending. He didn't say go out in this deep debate where you're not listening. But gentle and respectful. If you're like me, a lot of times when someone disagrees with me, I wanna go on the defense. I wanna be right. I don't like being wrong. If you're married, you realize, men, that that just has a way of being beat out of you over the years. You just learn that you're probably wrong. But I, I, I can think of that in my marriage, I can think about it in my relationships, my friendships. I wanna be right. And a lot of times my wanting to be right comes out in me being rude, or me not listening. Be prepared to tell them why you stand, why you have a hope, but with gentleness, respectful, listening. You're not going to win them to Jesus by beating them up in an argument. See, our weapon is not retaliation. Our weapon is the love of Christ. Christ. You don't, have to, you don't have to win the argument. You've got to love them. Let Jesus win them. Let the Holy Spirit reveal to him that he's real. I didn't come to know Jesus because I understood everything in Scripture. I came to Jesus because he showed me his love. Are you being gentle? But you better know why you hope. But look at, look at how Jesus models this. Look how Scripture, Matthew 5, 30, or 43 and 44 says, You have heard that it is said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. That's common in what our world says. Love those that love you. Hate those that are against you. Love the people that look like you and act like you and you're comfortable being around. Hate those that are against you. Don't have anything to do with them. But Jesus says, I say to you, Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Pray for those that come against you, that want to harm you, that want to rob you. Love them and pray for them. That's different. Luke 23, Jesus being crucified. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right, one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. As Jesus has just been trialed um, as an innocent man, put on a wrongful trial, convicted, then beaten, and then drug up a hill, nailed to a cross, Jesus says, forgive them, Father, they don't know what they do. Love, prayer, like in the face of persecution, Jesus models this, gentleness and respect. Stephen, the first martyr, And the Christian faith in Acts 7 says, And when they were stoning Stephen, he cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep as they're stoning him. Because he proclaimed Jesus. But he had an unwavering hope. Even in the face of death, he was gentle and respectful. Because his hope couldn't be taken from him. It couldn't be killed out of him. It was rock solid. A confidence, a conviction. 16. Having a good conscience, having a right mindset. Why you do it is not selfish. It's not for yourself to be advanced. Why you love people, why you're compassionate, why you serve, why you give, why why you do all the things that Christians are supposed to do is not for self, it's for God having a good conscience so that when you are slandered and those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Our hope in Christ must be, has to be, should be motivated because of what Jesus did on our behalf. If it's motivated by anything else, it's selfish. If it's motivated by anything else, you won't stand when it gets hard. You'll fall away when it gets tough. Have a good conscience, a clear mind. This is why I'm after it. This is why I'm allowing people to bring suffering into my life. Why I'm allowing persecution to happen. Why I'm standing confidently is because it's for the name of Jesus to go forward. It's not that Brandon Bridge Farmer or whoever you are will be elevated, but that Jesus will be elevated. Have a good conscience. See, God uses our suffering as a part of his will for the advancement of his name. Look at that. And this verse 17 is a tough verse. For it is better to suffer for doing good. It's okay. Like, you want to suffer for, if you're doing good. You don't want to suffer if you're doing evil. If that should be God's will. Peter's alluding to this idea that suffering is a part of the will of God. And that's hard for us to grasp because why would God allow bad things to happen to me? You hear it all the time. Why why would God allow that to happen to that person? Because he allowed it to happen to Christ. You look in Acts 4 and you see that it was the will of God that Christ would suffer. He determined it. Why would he not allow it in your life if it makes you more like him? But if your God, if our theology about God is that he just wants me to be comfortable, he just wants me to have a good life, he doesn't want me to ever feel discomfort or pain then we miss the point that God allows suffering to to remove the things about us that think highly of ourselves, that we might think highly of God. And that's tough, but we have to do something with it. See, he uses the stories. You read it all throughout Scripture. Acts 7, Stephen stoned. Acts 8, they leave Jerusalem, and God's message goes to Judea and Samaria. And then it gets... They get persecuted there and it goes out further and goes out further and goes out further because persecution and suffering happens. You read throughout church history. I love the story of Jim Elliott, who is an American missionary and four of his buddies were burdened over a Indian group in Ecuador. And they came up with this plan. It's a brilliant story. If you haven't ever read it, you should. There's a movie out about it. But they came up with this brilliant plan that they would be able to fly a plane in circles to be able to lower a basket into the jungle. I don't even know how you would do that, but lower it down that they would give gifts to this, to this group of Indians who were ruthless. Anyone that came into their part of the jungle would die. They would kill anyone that came into their area. They were a ruthless group of people, but Jim Elliott's heart was burdened for them. So he came up with this plan, and they, they would lower the gifts down, they started receiving gifts back when they would pull the basket up, and they believed that they, there was, it was safe to go land. So they landed on the beach. Some, people, some of the tribe came out. They had a meal with them. They felt like things were going well. A few days later, some ladies come out by the river. They go to approach them, and they realize they have now been surrounded by the warriors of the tribe who use eight-foot spears to kill their enemies. Jim Elliot was carrying a revolver and went to grab it, but decided and remember that he had vowed that they would not kill because they were confident in where they would go if they died. They knew that this tribe did not know Jesus, and if they died, they would go to hell. And so they were all brutally murdered that day. And that sounds like a terrible story, but to know the ending of the story, his wife, Jim's wife Elizabeth, trained for a year, then went to this same this same tribe of people, and that whole tribe was converted to Jesus. God used the suffering of these missionaries, but their faithfulness to go to the dark places for the advancement of his name. Why would he not want to use your suffering for the advancement of his name? Have a hope that you can stand on. But you still might ask the question, why has God let us suffer? Like, I kind of get it, but I still like emotionally don't feel it. But I want you to see this in verse 18. For Christ, for pointing back to everything we've seen, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered. Christ was wrongly accused, wrongly murdered by the will of God that he might bring us to him. Feel that. He suffered in your place, in my place. He took on the full wrath of God that we deserved because of our sin. He took it. He wore it. And he finished it on the cross that he would bring us to God 2 Corinthians 5 21 For our sake, he made him, Jesus, to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, when Jesus died on the cross and you surrendered your life to him, God doesn't see you as a sinner anymore. He sees the righteousness of Christ in you, paid in full. And if that reality sits deep in our hearts, it doesn't matter what comes in our life, we can stand on that hope, that confidence, that conviction. No matter what this world does to me, you can't take that from me. You can't take that from me. It doesn't matter what terrorist group you're from or what organization that hates the Christians, they can't take that hope from you. It's eternal. When, when ISIS was really getting its rise, I'll never forget, John Piper said, ISIS, you can't cut my head off in heaven. That's a confidence. And there's believers around the world. There's stories of martyrs from all throughout history that were able to stand in confidence because they knew that Jesus purchased them. And it didn't matter what happened in this life. They weren't living for their best life here on earth. They were living for a future glory in heaven. See, the goal of suffering, you become more like Christ. This is the hope. That it's it's pure, first, in chapter one, it's purifying. It's just as fire purifies gold and silver, it gets all the impurities out. It's making you more like him. You have to see him as holy because you have to rely on him. When it gets gets hard, when it gets painful, you have to trust that he's better. And in that, he makes you more like him. And it shows the world that he is worthy. When you stand firm, it shows the watching world. Verse uh, 16, those who slander you, those who revile you, will see your good behavior in Christ and will be put to shame. They see that Jesus is better And how we live our lives, they're watching. How are they seeing Christ in you? And the reward, see the goal is to become like him and show the world. The reward of suffering is being with God. You get to be with God. He suffered, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We were separated. The greatest news in all the world is that Jesus has purchased you to bring you back to God. There's no way to get to him on your own. There's no hope in your ability and your talents and your good looks or whatever it is, your money to bring you back to God. It's just that Jesus did it for you. And through our suffering, the world sees that, and we get to be with them. That's why Paul writes in, first, in Philippians 1.21, To live is Christ and to die is gain. If I'm going to live here, the world will know Jesus. If I die, it's better because I get to be with God. That's a confidence. It's a confidence. Paul also writes in 2 Corinthians 1, uh 8 and 9 he says for we do not want you to be unaware brothers of the affliction we experienced in Asia for we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself indeed we felt that we had received the sentence of death but it but that was to make us rely not on ourselves but on God who raises the dead Paul saying listen our life had got so bad. It was so brutal. We felt like we were just sent there to die. But God allowed it that we might rely on him only, not on ourselves. 2 Corinthians 4, a little bit later in this book. So we do not lose heart. Though we are, our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us eternal weight of glory beyond all comparisons. Nothing compares to what is prepared for us at the end of our life. The presence of God as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're fading. But the things that are unseen are eternal. we got to stop looking at the temporary. we got to stop looking at our possessions and our good life, our blessed life. we got to start looking at God. we got to start seeing that that's the blessing the presence of God. Get our eyes off the temporal. Get our eyes off temporary things and put our eyes on the eternal things. Put our eyes on Jesus. Philippians 3, 10 and 11, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection. Resurrection power is yours. It is mine. And we may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may obtain the resurrection of the resurrection power, the same power that brought Jesus out of that grave has given you life to stand with with confidence, with a hope. See, he has made the way possible. He's made it possible. But the question for all of us today, I think all of us have to answer this question. Do you want to be with God no matter the cost? Jesus has never in this book promised it will be easy. He never said the road that that leads to the presence of God is easy. But if God is who he says he is, and he did what he said he did, and this book is true, then it's worth it. The eternal weight of glory. Romans 8, 18. I I don't compare the present suffering worth comparing to the future glory. Though I suffer for a little bit, glory is mine in the end. So because this was his plan all along, that Jesus would die in your place, that he would pay the penalty for you if you trust in him. Today, do you want to be with God? I want to read Romans 8, 31 through 39, and then we'll be done. It says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed indeed, is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword for it is written for your sake we are being killed all day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered no in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us For I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what comes. It doesn't matter how bad it gets. It doesn't matter how horrible you feel like life is. Christ is for you and will never let you go. And you can stand in that hope today. You can stand when the world comes against you. When the world is after, you can stand with hope and with confidence that he will keep you and love you through it all. And that the future is brighter than what is in the moment. So church, the question for you today, are you willing, do you want to be with him forever, no matter the cost? Some of us need to, some of us need to come up here and we need to repent. And we need to ask Jesus for a faith and a confidence in this hope. Some of us for the first time ever need to see that Jesus paid the price on your behalf and trust in him. He says, anyone that will call in the name of the Lord will be saved. Anyone that will surrender their heart and soul and mind to him will be saved. And today is that day for you if you've never done it. I'd love to show you in scripture how. But my prayer for you is that we would be so rock solid in our understanding and belief and faith in him that when this world comes against us, we stand. So Father, would you empower us? Would you give us faith and strength, God, that when it gets hard, when it gets difficult, we will be ready. We'll be ready to make a defense and proclaim what you've done for us And we'll stand with a unwavering, unshakable hope. God, would you empower everyone in this room Would we leave boldly today carrying your name. God, if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Jesus, I pray that Holy Spirit, you would save them by the power of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Give them life. But we'll give you praise no matter the cost, no matter what you bring. In your name, Jesus, we pray.